0: This is Man's Search for Medicine with your hosts, Brandon Smith and Zach Pope. This podcast is a result of our desire to learn what's not being taught in medical school, but necessary to effectively help our patients. Through this learning process, we hope to excite doctors, empower patients, and challenge dogma, all while bringing humility and curiosity to the art and science of medicine. Welcome back to the show after a short hiatus. This week's episode will be a conversation that I had with Dr. George Schatz. I had the privilege of meeting and working with Dr. Schatz while I was rotating away at Cleveland Clinic's Department of Functional Medicine. Without further ado, here's that conversation. I'm here with Dr. George Schatz in the Cleveland Clinic Functional Medicine Clinic. Right now we're in an outpatient center in Chagrin Falls. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, yes. It's been a fun day so far.
0: Yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Dr. George Schatz trained in family medicine, and he did an integrative medicine fellowship at Tucson in Arizona before taking this job here in Cleveland Clinic in the Department of Functional Medicine. So my first question, and I'm probably most excited to ask this one, is you trained in family medicine, so why did you decide to pick that specialty?
1: It's a great question, and... There are about a million reasons, but I think one of the most major was because family medicine is sort of leading the charge. in In my opinion, at least from what I've seen, from you know looking at all the doctors that I wanted to be like when I grow up, uh, they all seem to be family medicine doctors, and um, it looked like the best career choice to make to in order to um, Basically, set myself up to succeed. To not just be able to learn all of the hard science behind all the basic, you know, medical conditions. Not just you know physiology, but then pathophysiology, and really get a solid basis in conventional medicine. Because I think it's really important. One of the doctors in Tucson used to always tell us, um, Doctor Horowitz, if he's listening, um, that you have to be credible to be incredible you know, first have to be credible. And so uh, I really took that to heart and made sure that, A, I could learn the type of of conventional medicine that I thought was uh, most important to my long-term career goals, which was, you know, integrative and functional medicine. It seemed like the best way to do that was through family medicine for a number of reasons. And I think that, well, you know, because family medicine residencies at the time when I was leaving med school, was 2015, and so at that time, the Center for Integrative Medicine at, you know, at the University of Arizona had the residency curriculums, integrative medicine in residency curriculum, the IMR, uh, we used to call it. And it was only really available in uh, about 13 or 14 different family medicine residencies, maybe one peds residency, but really um, only family medicine residency. And now it's in like 80 different family, probably 10 or 20 different internal. I mean, it's really taken off and who knows how many peds and psych and all that kind of stuff. So kudos to them. But, um, it also jived really well, you know, so I could get all that training while I was down at Tucson. I could learn integrative medicine while I'm learning conventional medicine, really getting a great solid foundation. Um, and where better to learn that than the Mecca for integrative medicine and at the time, uh, and, and still, um, in Tucson, Arizona. But um, family medicine also called to me because I think that as a generalist, as a as a primary care physician, you develop something that I don't really think you really can get in many other specialties. You know, a few others, you know, um, but maybe not that long-term um, relationship, but that's really what it is. It's relationships with patients. And seeing people in medical school, um, you know, seeing doctors who are, were, were practicing the most rewarding situations that I had seen were in primary care offices with doctors who knew their patients really well, you know, and had honestly almost like family relationships. And that was just something that was, um, you know, it was a formative time of my career. And that really struck me as, so important for so many reasons, but, um, leaving an office and having patients telling you like, Oh, you need to learn everything that this, you know, that Dr. Jaber says, take everything down. She has to say, because she loves us and she cares for us. And we, you know, I know that she would do anything for me. like hearing these patients talking about their doctor in this way was, was, um, you know, extremely enlightening to me and, um, you know, impressed upon me, not just, what medicine itself, and the sort of medical aspects, and what we do every day with our, you know, scientific left brains, you know, but what you can actually do if you incorporate that entire approach and really looking at patients from a much more um, holistic level, you know, really getting to know them and knowing them for not just who they are, but who they aren't and who they can be in some certain aspects.
0: Right, and it seems like you kind of really gravitated toward that human connection. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's that's
1: something that I think in the the next 20 or 30 years, you know, of course, when you're starting out in your your career, you want to sort of future proof things. Right. Right. You know, that that was going through my mind. And and I wanted to make sure that, you know, when I match into a program that it's not going to be something that's just kind of kind of fall to the wayside or sort of burn itself out or be replaced or supplanted and and be um, not as fulfilling as it could possibly be and I think that as we move through medicine in the future um, that people to person-to-person interaction you know people talking to people is something that will never change I mean we have to uh, keep that in mind through through all of the um, changes that medicine is going through I mean I don't see for any way that 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 face-to-face interaction of course telemedicine changes that in some ways quite a bit but um, when you get down to it there's that there's something there in that uh, human interaction piece that I think is extremely powerful for healing in general and um, in some ways it can really make or break any sort of biomedical treatment that you've put together
0: right we kind of talked about one of those studies that uh you mentioned earlier Could you talk about that one a little bit
1: yeah yeah so um you know and this this uh dr rakel steve uh sorry dave rakel um who's now in new mexico um, wrote a book a lot about what we talk about and um, he mentions how many different specialists in today's medical world actually are they're doing their jobs great but they've actually been found to be not as good at certain aspects of their jobs as computers. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean it's mostly pattern recognition, right? So we can feed images of diabetic retinopathy to computers and they can tell better than ophthalmologists which patients actually have diabetic retinopathy. And the same goes for pictures through CT scans and pictures of melanomas and cancer staging, I believe cervical cancer has been the most well studied, um, but all these pattern recognition aspects are something that we do well, you know, and we were the best at it for millions of years, but now we've actually created a technology that is better than us in a certain way, but there's absolutely no way, uh, in my opinion, that a computer could be better at us at a person-to-person interaction. And, this, 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 and there's data to prove it. And so Dr. Rakel did this study in, uh, in Wisconsin before he's now in, in um, uh, New Mexico. But this, amaz- this really wonderful study with um, people who were calling into a family medicine clinic with URI symptoms. So they were randomly allocated into basically three groups, a control group that was a wait list, and then a group that was a caring, empathetic individual, or the third group, someone who um, was to be deemed uncaring, you know, and not empathetic. And they actually had to, like, take acting classes to make sure that they could be not empathetic. They had to follow the script. And um, the results of the study are, are astounding. You know, of course, the people who had an empathetic, caring doctor improved, you know, quicker than control. The people who had an uncaring doctor not only did not improve as fast as the people who did have an uncaring doctor, but they actually had symptom duration that was, I forget exactly the number, but it was either a half a day or a day longer than the people on the control group. And that just blows my mind. So the people, being an uncaring doctor, having an uncaring doctor see you for an illness is actually, it makes you worse off than not seeing any doctor at all. And, I mean, whoever, all well, I know who put the, together this study, but um, it, it just blows my mind that we now, you know, of course can prove some of these things, but we all understand this, you know, fundamentally. It really does make sense.
0: Right, and I mean, I think the biggest takeaway from that study is that the therapeutic intervention of actually just seeing a provider that cares for you has that positive impact in your health and kind of could focus on hmm. how being an empathetic provider can just provide benefit in general,
1: right? And and the funny thing too is, um, actually, I forgot this part of this study. they actually did intranasal swabs and tested them for IL eight levels, and the cytokine for for illness. Uh, you know, the marker for these illness actually was higher in people who had non caring physician, lower in the people that had a caring physician, and then equal, you know, for you know, equivocal for people who um, had no physician at all and no interaction. So you know, not only does it produce subjective changes, you know, in your outlook and your illness duration scores, but I mean, biomedical evidence that something changes, right? I mean, something actually changes in the body when we basically, when we feel good, right? When you talk to somebody and you feel heard and, you know, you, you feel like that was an, uh, a visit that was productive, you know, all these things that, to be perfectly honest, I even thought were not that important, you know, when I went into medical school and before my, uh, my journeys going into medical school and all of that, until I really experienced some of these things for myself and really understood the value of... Um, what's the right, right, right word. I mean, it's couching your terms. It's, it's being able to communicate effectively. It's, it's being able to have empathy and and being able to show compassion to people on a daily basis. When you do that day in and day out in med school and residency, you realize what works and what doesn't, you know, it's really easy to see, Oh, you know, if I say, you know, I'm sorry, you, you have this, um, not even that, you know. If you say see somebody coming into urgent care, and it's like it's a virus. Get out of my face, you know. <laughs> or you say, you know, I see that you've said that you've had augmentin for you know these illnesses in the past, and they seem to have helped you. And what I can say now is there are five. Made, and this is actually the, the the spiel I would give people at urgent care. I did lots of urgent care um, uh, moonlighting during residency and and uh, fellowship. There are five major bacterial illnesses that we worry about people in your condition who have had it that are coming in with these symptoms. Number one is up here in the in the head is sinusitis and your sinuses are fine when I see them. Look in your ears ear infections you don't have ear infections. Bacterial throat infections, like a strep throat I don't see that either. The fourth is in the lungs your lungs there's no bacterial infection in your lungs right now. And the fifth is a little um, less common, but it's in the GI tract sometimes. You get some GI tract after these things. So out of all of those, I've looked at all of them. They all seem perfectly fine. You're doing extremely well from a bacterial standpoint. What I think your runny nose and what your sore throat and what your headache is from is from a virus. And I think that that is something that these antibiotics are not going to help. It's actually going to make you feel worse it may give you some diarrhea or something like that which is the last thing you need right now and the best thing for you is actually going to be some antiviral herbal preparations that we can put together for you and tell them all about elderberry and the data blah 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 behind it and you know all that kind of stuff but you know when you say things like that you realize that people just go oh cool yeah you know and and they don't come back and you don't get calls from people all angry you know calling back up to the ma's trying to you know blah 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 having all sorts of issues after You know, they had bad interactions and things like that, and things tend to go better, and people tend to, A, I mean, be happier with their care, but we know that that improves outcomes. So why wouldn't we do that, take that little extra time and effort to put into um, improving our efficacy? And really, that's all it's about, and what all of this is about is being better doctors, right? And this is one way that any doctor can be either a much better one or a really bad one. And it's just that personality piece, that empathy piece, really, you know, that compassion that piece, so.
0: Right, and on top of that, so we talk about being better doctors um, right now in medicine. I mean, there's been this big shift that we talked about where it's gone from memorizing the textbook and keeping an update with that versus now all the information's online and feel like currently really accessible to everything that we need um yeah and and really the question or the the, to, the topic is the point is
1: what makes you a good doctor and what made you a good doctor 50 60 70 years ago you know even if you go back to the time in the 30s or 40s when the flexner report came out and all of medicine changed you know and we actually had standards now that was really the first time ever that we had standards national standards for good doctors, really good education of doctors, but then you can sort of posit that that then bleeds over into having standards for good doctors. But what made people good doctors before the advent of technology was their brains, right? The ability to see a person and have a huge list of possible out- or possible problems, order them in the way of, of most common to least common, And then to know exactly, you know, okay, well, this means this, and based on this, I think that this is more likely, and that's more likely, and then I'm going to do this test to rule out this, and now we don't, I mean, so now what makes you a good doctor? That sure doesn't matter. I mean, not nearly as much as it used to. Yes, it's important you have to have these things in your brain, but all you really have to know is, I remember one thing about this way back when, let me, while I'm literally still having this conversation three feet away from this person, type two words over here, hit enter, and then have an entire list of things that, oh yes, that's what this is. And oh yeah, remember this, I should really make sure that I do such and such test. We now, through our technological advancements, don't have to be held to the same standards that we were in the past. And and being a doctor is is shifting, and honestly, I think that's a lot of why so many of the the sort of older physicians I hesitate to use the term, but there it went. Um, you know, physicians who learned medicine prior to the advent of technology, where everything was on note cards, and you know, they didn't have computer systems whatsoever. Um, there was this like a like punch cards that you had to like punch out and you know you'd go to like one place in a hospital to get all the lab printouts for everyone and they'd be on these big like roll sheets with the little punches out like on the sides and you have to like fold it over and all this these are all the stories that i've heard from all these old uh, the the you know physicians the attending doctors that um are are the elders in the community now what made them good doctors is not the same as what makes us good doctors and i honestly feel that what make because we have all these technological advancements, we can we can sort of offload some of that workforce. You know, we don't really need to be judged so much on our 100 percent rote memorization medical knowledge anymore. Um, what I think is going to stay in the test of time, what's going to be the most important moving forward through Um, the medicine of the future in 20, 30, 40 years is that ability to take information and convey it to a person in the perfect way that they will understand it and be able to then actually use it. You know, in functional medicine, we do a lot of overloading patients, and we do that in every field, but we're totally guilty of it too. And we see somebody, we take in so much more I and mean, you know we have longer visit times and we end up taking in so much more information than you would in a 15 minute visit i've been in the 15 minute minute medical model you take in exponentially more information when you have 60 minutes more with a patient it's not linear at all you know it's not like 10 pieces of information for 15 minutes 40 for 60 minutes no it's it's a thousand you know it's 10 to the 1 10 to the 4 so 10,000 right honestly and so When you do that you have to synthesize it and you have to figure out a plan and you have to convey that back to a person and so typically we take in so much information we synthesize it and we put out so much that patients are completely overwhelmed and left in the dark and then they do nothing and then they come back and really that's the judge of how well a doctor you are is how well your patients get
0: right so i think that's really the only way we can kind of measure yeah
1: you know? it has to be right and that's why we're getting to these press Ganey scores and things like that and a lot of that honestly has to do with um you know the tracking of medicine uh and judging of how well doctors are doing a lot of that has to do with personability. you know i think that that's a great way press Ganey scores are like how Happy you are with your care basically and if you like your doctor of course you're gonna be happy with your care you know if they're like they are relatable and they explain things in ways that you understand then of course you're gonna like them you're gonna have great scores um, but patient outcome is not something that we've yet quite been able to track so consistently and we're working on it in functional medicine I mean there's the NIH promise scale that we use with every patient there's the MSQ score which unfortunately is something that's used quite oftenly in the functional medicine realm multiple System Questionnaire, right, I believe, MSQ. Um, it's not as validated as the NIH Promise Scale that's extremely great, but that's really what we should be doing with every patient every time is, yes, seeing how their outcomes improve, how their symptoms improve every time, and then, yes, you're a good doctor when your symptoms, when your patients get better, which goes back, I mean, it totally flies in the face of modern medicine and the way that it's been thought of for almost 100 years now. But if you go back to to traditional Chinese medicine, that was one of the traditional maxims, right, is that you don't get paid when when your patients are sick. You should not get paid when your patient's in a hospital. It was the idea back when, who knows? Um, Because I'm sure that's still not the the way that people think about it. But there's so much there. there's so much to this concept, but I think that's really the main, the main pieces.
0: So overall, the trend that you see medicine taking and I guess the future trajectory, how do you see that looking?
1: Uh, that's a great question because, um, yes, we've outlined sort of the, the role of the physician moving forward. And I don't want to discount the, the biomedical aspect, you know, the biopsychosocial, yes, it's important, but really the, the medical piece too is is fundamental. I mean, that's what we do first and foremost, of course. So we're not all just hand-holding and things like that. Yes, it's a big part of it, but it's not the, it's, it's not the end all be all. Um, we are doctors first, we are uh, counselors second, but we should be good counselors too when we need to be. Um, but then, so when you look at the medical model, um, what needs to change what is changing you know and what really does need to change in order to make sure that our system doesn't continue its plunge down into the depths I mean as we're on a downward spiral for sure anyone who thinks that that's not true has their head in the sand I mean it's just obvious if you read any reports and you look at any of the literature but what needs to change for that is that we have to change as far as our thought process there needs to be in medical schools two different concepts that are taught to first-year medical students from day one and propagated all the way through and it's it's two different ways of thinking about illness and two ways of thinking about patient interaction one is what we do now which works extremely well in acute care settings so emergency room doctors still need to see a patient and think about a list as long as their are of all the possible causes for this illness how likely they are how dangerous they are, make sure they rule out the dangerous ones, and then work towards the likely ones, make their diagnosis, give their treatments, and then move on. You know, that's acute care medicine. It works really well here, better than any other country, and that should not change. But when you try to tack that model on to chronic care, it just doesn't work. Chronic illness is a different, it's a fundamentally different beast than acute illness. It very much so is, and it has to be, or it it does have, I mean, it has to be addressed as such. You know, we have to recognize that it's different and we have to address it as such. And the approach of functional medicine, the reason why I'm here and the reason why I think it is so powerful and the reason why I have, you know, dedicated as much time in my life as I have to learn it and to use it is because it is the only model that I've found so far that really addresses chronic care in the way that it should it's a totally different thought process towards patient interaction and it's something that needs to be taught to every medical student and say hey you this is chest pain keep doing what you're doing you know this is a chest pain patient and they, you have to make sure that it's not acute coronary syndrome you have to make sure it's not a PE you have to make sure it's not an aortic dissection all that kind of thing but now this is your hyperlipidemia patient. You better sure as heck not treat your hyperlipidemia patient the same as you just treated your chest pain patient because they're not the same things. They may be related, but they're not at at all the same things. And the only way that I have currently found, the only clinical model that really works for chronic disease in general has been the functional medicine model, where you really get to know 100% of, of a patient, you know, not just who they are, but who they should be, who they can be. And then you take them from where they are to where they need to be. And you address all of the lifestyle factors that have got them to who they are today. And you figure out which ones are maladaptive and you work behaviorally to change those. And yes, that's a team approach and that's why I'm at the Center for Functional Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic because it's the only place I've seen so far that has a working system, a working team-based approach to really changing and propagating this change in people's lifestyles long term, really getting people healthier and it's an academic center too so we can get in the minds of the youngsters down in the, the medical school and we can hopefully work to uh, to to have them adopt this way of thinking so that we can start to change the face of medicine by having literally two different thought processes to disease in general to patient interaction a chronic care model an acute care model and until that happens i don't think that medicine is going to um... I think it's just going to be, it's going to continue its sort of trials and tribulations. It's going to continue going through this adolescence, and it's never going to really mature into this um, medical system that provides the care for this new wave of illness that we've brought upon ourselves with our society as it is. So... That's that's really the bigger picture. Is that you know our society is evolving and our medicine isn't. So what are we gonna do? We're we gonna go back to you know whatever system that we had before as far as society. We're we gonna go back to the caste system. Really, It's like anybody think that actually is gonna happen? No, of course not. So we need to we need to just keep moving and we need to innovate a little faster. And anybody who's dragging their feet has to realize that it's a new world. Like things change so quick like imagine now so what is this this is 2019 i have an iphone 10 here sitting here and it's probably what 2 years old already yeah,
0: the iphone's 11 out 11 okay yeah.
1: so now think back what when i was in when i was graduating med school that was 2015 i had an iphone 5c so now imagine what has changed from your iPhone 10 to an iPhone, or from an iPhone 5C, like what has changed technologically from that point and and socially and and all this kind of, you know, along that aspect. And then what has changed medically? Mm, You know, I mean, we need to think of, of our science on the same aspect. I mean, we're learning things so much on the same scale. Like our science really is changing in that speed, right? We're just so slow to implement it. You know, we, you know we are terribly slow to implement these things and that i think that sort of behooves the future medical doctor um to be a translational physician in some ways you know a translational scientist to take science and to implement it in real time and track change and keep changing and then track that change and the plan do study act stuff that you'll hear you know, ad nauseum in, in, in medicine but it's really true i mean it really is the the physician of the future is going to be able to change on a dime based on the most important and Mm -hmm. most prevalent and most obvious literature I think this Mm -hmm. guideline system yes I understand why we have guidelines and I I I'm glad we have guidelines but there's also to change and then everyone changes all their practice all at once like is that really how our science comes out like okay maybe there's a landmark study here and there and a lot of things change based on these landmark studies but Overall, it's it's incremental change, rather than. Okay, well, we're not, we're not doing PSAs anymore, screening. So sorry, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't understand, um, why we haven't been able to um, to modernize in some certain sense. But that's a little a little more in depth, I think, than we we bit off in, in the beginning.
0: I think so. But, I mean, I agree with you. I think all facts have that half-life, and I think yep. as physicians are going through, they're kind of going to start to realize that hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I do agree with you, I think, as far as the, the trend in healthcare is going to go toward the problem. And, I mean, I don't think anyone would disagree that chronic disease is kind of the big problem right now. Totally. And I think it's the big problem because we
1: just can't deal with it. Like we literally have to think outside the box. Like we have to completely change our thought process in order to deal with it. And until people realize, oh, hey, there's people who have realized that 30 or 40 years ago and they created this, I'm talking 20 years in the future. So this model, functional medicine model, basically you know, the thought process solidified 20 years ago, which is actually not really true. And it's not really fair to all the naturopaths in the world who've been thinking this way for however long, but anyway. as what it is as how it stands today 20 years from now people will hopefully it will gain critical mass and it will be on the center stage and people will realize oh hey okay we have this this model that we can then adopt we don't have to reinvent the wheel we don't have to to teach our students from day one we can actually just sort of implement what people have been doing for a while already that works and that's that's where i think we're at though it's still so so far in its infancy
0: right i mean i think that's one big thing that the goal with the Center for Functional Medicine is trying to do is kind of really get that evidence right now. Yeah and I mean,
1: honestly I mean that's that's the Cleveland Clinic's purpose. That is the, the mission, the vision. It's it's great care for patients, it's research, and it's education. So um, I mean that has to be thought of when in the functional medicine realm, and in the integrative medicine realm, we have to constantly be yes doing our medicine and helping patients to improve, but also making our medicine better, researching and teaching people how to do things the best that they're being done currently, you know, to really uh, have that pedigree, you know, come down along the line so that we collectively better and better ourselves, you know, don't teach people the stuff that doesn't work, teach them what works and let it keep going. And then they will find out what works even better. And and that process just has to keep going and that's why I'm just so thankful to be here at this institution that is the only place in the world that's currently set up and poised to research what we do and really educate people based on the functional medicine model. And so that's my plug for Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine. <laughs> yeah. Come on down, come do some resident rotations with us. Um but yeah.
0: No, I mean, you guys are definitely in a good position. And from my perspective, it was fun to come and visit and see everything that you guys were doing.
1: And we love to have you. And thank you for this opportunity with this podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah.
0: All right. That sounds great. So. Well, thanks for joining us for another uh, episode of Man's Search for Medicine. Yeah. We look forward to the next one. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and doesn't constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and material of the podcast is at the user's own risk. Guests who speak on the podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. The content of this podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any treatment of conditions.